0: Now, our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, and I'm reading from Exodus chapter 15, and I'm going to read down to verse 21. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Follow. The Bible reading, if you have a personal copy, open and find the place, follow the words, listen to the Word of God. You can see it on the screen. Exodus 15 verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, And he has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God. And I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, have dashed in pieces the enemies. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sendest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestine. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over which thou hast purchased, thou shalt bring them in, and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign for ever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots, and with his horsemen into the sea, And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went in dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, this morning, I am concluding our short series of sermons on the subject, the holiness of God. This, I believe, has been an important and necessary study Now, this is my seventh sermon on the subject. The other six sermons are also online, and we want to encourage you, especially if you're new today and you've just tuned in, we would ask that you try to find some time to listen and watch these other sermons. You can do so via our church website or YouTube, and please remember to subscribe if you can. Now, my text today is taken from Exodus 15, verse 11. It reads as follows. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And my theme today is God's holiness and the consideration of his sentence. Now the background to these words of Moses is recorded in chapter 14. There you have an inspirational record of the miraculous defeat of Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army at the Red Sea. And concurrent with that event is also the wonderful deliverance of the children of Israel, also through a passage in the Red Sea. Prior to this, in fact, for 400 years, the children of Israel have been enslaved in cruel bondage in Egypt. This came to pass shortly after the death of Joseph. Remember, he for a time was prime minister of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8, it states that there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And there was this Pharaoh that decided then to enslave the children of Israel and cruelly oppressed them. And the early chapters of Exodus give a very detailed account of this wickedness. He deliberately enslaved a people that posed no threat at all to him they had done nothing wrong that made them worthy of being made slaves. They were forced to work for no money. They were building treasure cities for Pharaoh. Every day they felt the lash of their master's whip. And because they kept multiplying, Pharaoh even ordered the midwives to slay the male children as soon as they were born. Thankfully, in the providence of God, they refused. And when that failed, then soldiers were ordered to uh, throw the males into the River Nile after uh, they were born. Now, this state of suffering continued many, many years. Can you think of that? Year upon year, the suffering continues. In fact, 400 years the suffering continued. And remember, of course, this was prophesied by God to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And if you look at your Bible, and in the book of Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 15, we have the words recorded in verse 13. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger In a land that is not theirs And shall serve them And they shall afflict them four hundred years And also that nation whom they shall serve Will I judge And afterwards shall they come out With great substance You see this was fulfilled to the letter Abraham's seed ended up in a land that was not theirs. They were strangers there. They were afflicted there. And after 400 years, God said that He would judge that nation. He told them that you're going to come out of that nation and you're going to come out with great substance. And of course, that's exactly what happened according to the mind and will of God. In the early chapters of Exodus, we read about the birth of Moses. And his early years how he grew up in Pharaoh's palace and in the land of Egypt. He left remember when he was 40 and then remember when he was 80 years of age God called Moses at the burning bush. He was commissioned by the Lord to go back into the land of Egypt and tell Pharaoh this is what he was to say let my people go. Pharaoh of course was stubborn and rebellious He refused. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? We do know from the Bible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart through the deceitfulness of sin. He wouldn't let the children of Israel go free. So what did God do? Well, God sent into Egypt a a plague after plague of judgment. The Bible tells us in Exodus 7, verses 14 to 24, the rivers turned to blood. Then there was the plague of frogs, chapter 7, verse 25, through to chapter 8, verse 15. Then there was the plague of lice, chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. The plague of flies, uh, chapter 8, verse 20 to 32. Then there was the disease of the livestock, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. The plague of boils, uh, chapter 9, verses 8 through to 12. A plague of thunderstorm, hail and fire, chapter 9, verses 13 to 35. The plague of locusts, Uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. And then, of course, there was darkness for three days, which was the ninth plague. Exodus chapter 10, 21 to 29. And you can read these for yourselves. And sadly, after each plague, Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go. At times he said they could go, and then he reneged upon his province. He he hardened his heart, as I said, through deceitfulness of sin. And Pharaoh has to be seen as a wicked, stubborn sinner before God. And here's his land that's devastated. It's stripped bare. The people are in despair. And then what followed was the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Every home not protected by the power of the blood of the lamb. The death angel visited and slew the firstborn child in that home. This, of course, was the last and the final plague. And what separated the Egyptians from the Israelites was the blood that was upon their doors. Uh, By the side of the blood, they were safe under its power. Sadly, many of the firstborn, especially of the Egyptians, were sentenced to die. Pharaoh called for Moses. He was told, Leave the land of Egypt, go serve your God in the wilderness. And the children of Israel, on the very night of the Passover, left Egypt a free people, left Egypt a redeemed people to the glory of God. Once they had left Pharaoh and his officials, then had second thoughts. They felt the children of Israel would be lost in the wilderness, so they pursued after them at the Dead Sea. And Exodus 14 opens up with a crisis for the children of Israel. Here they are, facing the Red Sea, standing on its border, a deep, wide sea. They had mountains on either side. Behind them was the raging of Pharaoh's army. They they could see the dust. They could hear the rumbling in the distance. And they needed what? They needed God's help. They needed God to intervene. This was a back-to-the-wall situation. The Lord told them to stand still and see the salvation of God. And of course, uh, the Lord miraculously opened up a passage for them through the Red Sea. Commentators tell us that that was about one mile wide through the Red Sea. The Lord, he blew with his wind and wall of water stood on either side. Even as the children of Israel crossed over on the dry riverbed right to the other side of the Red Sea about 2 million of them Pharaoh of course was hot on his heels he decided to follow he led the whole army of Israel in their chariots with their captains think of the common soldiers following on and once they were there in the uh, dry bed of the red sea god again blew with his wind and those walls of water that stood upright they fell in around them as the sea was reunited on every side so Pharaoh and his army were miraculously destroyed and overthrew in the midst of the Red Sea. And isn't that, of course, what the Bible tells us in the Holy Scriptures here? We have read it together in Exodus 15, verses 1 right through to 21. God judged them. Just as he promised to Abraham, God had triumphed. And at this time, when the children of Israel seen the triumph of the Lord and experienced this wonderful victory over their enemies, then they sang this song of praise to the Lord. It says in Exodus 15, verse 1, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And they speak, saying, I will sing unto the Lord For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The mood of the singing here was one of jubilation. The whole of the song is a wonderful description of the person and the power of our God. Many commentators, of course, call it the song of the sea. And I want you to notice this morning that it is connected to God's holiness. Look at verse 15. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You see, the theme of God's holiness is central to and an integral part of this particular song. And because God is holy, God will deal with all and every one of his enemies in the fullness of time, according to his will and good purpose, and God will judge them as he said. And that's exactly what's in view here. And that's why I've said this morning, as we've wrapped up this series of messages, God's holiness and the consideration of his sentence. I want you to think of three things this morning. I want you to think of the importance of God's sentence. You see, why is this event so important? And I believe the answer is very simple yet sublime this morning. It is so important because it brought to the hearts and minds of the children of Israel a new view of The greatness of God, especially focusing in on the holiness of God. Remember when Pharaoh had Moses stand before him for the very first time? Pharaoh's response was when he was told, let my people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? You see, he did not know God. He said, because I don't know this God, I won't let your people go. He would not heed the call. He would not listen to sound advice. So God sent 10 plagues into the land uh, to completely destroy and devastate the land of Egypt. And what was his purpose? Well, listen, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4, we read, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. In Exodus 14, verse 18, we read, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. You see, the complete and utter destruction of Pharaoh and his chariots was for this purpose, that they might know that the Lord is the only true and living God. You see, here is a new manifestation of God's character. Exodus 15 verse 11, I believe, is the climax of this new manifestation of the person and power of God. Moses asked, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. And the chief attribute of God that was revealed to men at the Red Sea is this awesome revelation of the holiness of God. God is revealing himself to them. And and Moses says that God is glorious in holiness. Here's a unique description of God. Surely we could say this morning the doctrine of who God is and what he is like is one of the most important doctrines in all of the Bible. Surely that is obvious. Without God, there would be nothing else. Without God, there's nothing really matters. And the Bible says, in the beginning, God and, and uh, we've got to think of who God is and what God is like and, and what God has done. And, and in fact, in the Hebrew, the word Elohim, which is plural, uh, also has a naphna attached to it. And of course, that's a main pause in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew writer would have known to stop and pause in the beginning God. So he'd be thinking, who is God? What is God like? And what has He done? You see, we could talk this morning of the solitariness of God. We could talk about the sovereignty of God. The supremacy of God. What about the single-mindedness of God? What about the spirituality of God? You see, I believe it's important this morning that we have a right view of God. And the God of the Bible is unique. There is none like him. There's none to whom we can compare our God. He is definitely not like the false gods, which are the invention of men's minds. He is above all beings. He's infinitely holy and better and higher and greater than even all the most powerful of human beings in the world put together. Remember what we read in the gospel of John concerning God. The Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 24, he made a marvelous statement. He said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, the Lord our God is one Lord. Remember, he's not divided into body parts as we are. He is one pure, indivisible spirit who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal, all coexistent, all co-eternal. And I want to tell you again this morning that everything about our God, the God of the Bible, is that he is intrinsically Holy. He is matchlessly incomparable to any other. He is completely separated from everyone and anything else. Oh, that we could get a manifestation of how infinitely pure and holy our God is. He's not just holy, you know. He's glorious in his holiness. God is most glorious because of the beauty of his holiness. And because of the beauty of his holiness, our God is most glorious. We can say again, holiness is not just one aspect of God's character or being. I want to tell you, it's not just one of his many attributes. God is holy, and everything about God is holy. His justice is holy. His love is holy. His wisdom is holy, his truth is holy, his name is holy, his mercy is holy, his grace is holy. And oh, that we could rediscover that. See, many today have an obscure bent view of the love of God because they have forgotten that God's love is a holy love. I believe that the children of Israel seem to grasp this truth somewhat. It's like they'd been given a fresh view and a fresh manifestation of their God. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And part of that song was who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Is it any wonder, Miriam, answered the woman and said to them, sing ye to the Lord. And talking about what God has done. And I believe folks this morning who are listening to me, that's what we need in Northern Ireland. That's what Carrie Duff FPC needs. That's what I need. I need a fresh vision of my God. In fact, doesn't Moses say in this song, the Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God. And if he's my God, then I want a fresh glimpse and view of my God. And I believe, of course, sadly, that the church of Jesus Christ has lost sight of who God is. We talk about God. But is it the God of the Bible? Is it this God who is thrice holy? Is it this God who is glorious in holiness in everything that he says and thinks and does? See, that's the importance of his sentence. I want you to think, secondly, the instruction of his sentence. Why have we such a pure view of sin today? Why have we such a pure view of hell and of judgment to come? Why is the doctrine of hell Denied an eternal punishment? Well here's the answer We have such a poor view of God You see if we have a poor view of God We'll have a poor view of sin And we'll have a poor view Of God's sentence for sin Remember God has said in Romans 6 and 23 That the wages of sin is death It says in Ezekiel 18 verse 4 The soul that sinneth it shall die Psalm 19 Or Psalm 9, verse 17, rather, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. Now here's the children of Israel standing on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. They have crossed safely to the other side and they can see the dead bodies floating there. They can scan out onto the waters of the Red Sea and they see more and more bodies emerging out of the depths. Bodies of fully clad soldiers, bodies of chariot men, bodies of Calvary men. And they understand as they stand there and watch this, that this is God's sentence on Pharaoh's sin and the Egyptians. They understand that this was an act of divine vengeance, that this was God's retribution for sin and rebellion that God had brought this to pass. You see, this God is glorious in holiness, and here's the instruction from these words. God will not excuse sin. He'll not condone sin. He'll not praise sin. He'll not be indifferent to sin. He'll not be ignorant of sin. Remember, all sin is against God. What is sin? Catechism tells us sin is any um, want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. First John 3 and 4 Sin is the transgression of the law And what we need today And here's the instruction from these words Not only the importance of his sentence But the instruction from his sentence That we have a proper view of sin You see Do we not list sins That we deem that are really bad Killing innocent people We know that thou shalt not kill Premeditated, cold-blooded murder is sin We know that abortion is sin And this church takes a very strong stand against abortion in Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom and throughout the world. We know that rape is very bad. Molesting a child is bad, sinful. The beating of your wife or the beating of your husband. We know those are really, really bad things. What about robbery, gambling, drug addiction, a drink problem? Well, you see, we look upon those things as bad. But what about our faults? What about our feelings? What about our murmurings and our grumblings and complainings? What about the sins of thought, the sins of word, the sins of deed? You see, in our mind we think that some things are really, really bad, but other things are not really seen as bad. We don't see lust and jealousy and grumbling and murmuring and complaining as bad. But once we read God's word, then we discover that sin is one of the oldest things in the world. And we discover this, that God deals with every sin. Do you know that God deals with every sinner? Doesn't the Bible say in Romans 14 verse 12, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Could could you imagine God calling us to account for every sin, thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed? Remember in that last great day, the day when the dooms of men are finally and fatally sealed. It says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 23, when men profess to know the Lord and be in a right relationship with him. He said, then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. And you know, it's important that every child of God has a proper view of sin. Could I ask this morning, have you God's view of sin? Have you faced up to your own sinfulness? Have you confessed to the Lord? Like the old publican in Luke 18, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And even though you've never been guilty of some of these wicked crimes against humanity, Let's see not loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength as sin. Let's see unbelief as sin this morning. Let's see murmuring and grumbling and complaining and lust and jealousy. Let's see that as sin. And let's repent of it and repudiate it before God. Because you know a proper view of sin will also bring to us a proper view of the sentence. Remember what I've said. God is at work in Exodus 14 what are we singing about here in this song? We're singing about what the Lord hath done. How that God has executed his judgment upon Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. See, that's the theme of the whole song. If you read it and study it carefully, it's all about what the Lord has done. The focus is not on Moses or Aaron or the children of Israel, nor the women. No, no, it's unto the Lord. Look at Exodus 15, verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord. Why? For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Think of verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his hoth has he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. So there's no mistake here. Over and over again, every reference, and there's over 50 of them here to the Lord, 11 directly, he's called Jehovah, and you add all the pronouns, put them all together, and there's over 50 references here in these 21 verses to the Lord. And let me just add this this morning. As you think not only of the importance of a sentence, but the instruction from a sentence, we need a proper view of sin, but we need a proper view of a sentence. Remember, this is a, a personal sentence because God judges every sinner personally. Think of the references in the song to Pharaoh. He is singled out as the leader of Egypt. I believe that God will take a personal dealing with every sinner who lives in defiance of him, who lives and dies independently of him. I think of that great sermon this morning by Jonathan Edwards in the 17th century in New England, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. It's the holy work of God to bring about divine vengeance and wrath because it belongs to him and he will carry it out personally. It's God who holds men and women personally accountable. Remember, we're all dependent on him, in him we move and live and have our being. It's God who gives us breath to breathe and enjoy every day. It's him that provides mobility and strength. Remember, he measures us against his perfect standard of absolute sinless perfection. And it's his law that's been broken and transgressed and trampled upon. Remember this holy God that we worship this morning. He cast out the angels that sinned in rebellion against him. He threw Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden as part of a punishment for sin. Remember they died spiritually, they died physically. And of course they were in danger of dying eternally. Remember he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. Because of the sin of homosexuality Which is an abomination to the Lord He uh, Ordered the death of the false Prophets in the days of Elijah And Mount Carmel 400 prophets of the grove 450 prophets of Baal He slew Herod in Acts 12 His body was eaten with worms Remember because he gave not God the glory And thought he was a God You see it's God's work to judge Sinners And he judges sinners On the basis of his holy justice and holy wrath and holy grace and mercy and love. He is the heavenly judge. He's the one who does this. He's the only one who can pass the sentence. It's part and parcel of who God is. He's looked upon as the judge of the whole earth. This is not just a personal sentence, it's a perfect sentence. The Bible tells us, as for God, his way is perfect. All he does is right and good and true. He's always true to his holy nature. He never acts contrary to it. He won't bend the rules. He won't treat men or women, young people, unfairly. His methods will never be wrong or evil. He will never be suspected of being too harsh or too cold. He is perfect in all that he does, and that includes his judgment of sin, and that includes his dealing with every wicked sinner. In Psalm 103, we read in verse 6. Listen to the words. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses and his acts unto the children of men. And of course, that includes what he did at the Red Sea. The judgment of sin is done and carried out according to God's perfect righteousness. There's no mistakes. There's no miscarriages of justice. There's nobody saying, that's not fair. There's no mistrials in God's court. No loopholes. No escaping of this perfect sentence. Could I tell you as well, it's a powerful sentence. You think of Pharaoh's chariots and his host that he hath cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. When you think about that, the Egyptian army at that time was one of the greatest armies in the whole world. You think of their military might. You think of the fear of those charioteers and the horsemen who formed part of the cavalry, and yet they could not withstand the power of God. There's nothing they could do to stop it. They were powerless. For he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. We've read it a couple of times from verse 1 and in the verse 4. You see, God's wrath and his judgment of sin is irreversible. You can't resist it. You, You can't fight against God and win. No sinner could ever resist the power of God. Many oppose God today. Maybe you're one of them. You oppose God's way. You live for sin. You live for self. You're like Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You, you oppose God's word. You say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not going to get saved. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to believe the gospel. I'm not going to obey the need of God. You oppose God's will for your life. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'm my own master of my own destiny. But even though you oppose God's way and word and will, could I tell you this morning, you'll never, ever oppose God's wrath. Because once this holy God determines and decides to act against you, there's only one outcome. And if the might of Pharaoh and his charioteers and his cavalrymen and, and, and his foot soldiers couldn't save themselves, you won't be able to contend with God. Julian the Apostate said as he lay dying, throwing up his blood from his side. No man can fight God and win. Can I tell you, this is a permanent sentence? There was no escape for Pharaoh and the charioteers. There's no exit from this judgment. You think of the scene, how they died in the depths of the sea. The horses, the chariots, men with military uniforms, their, their bodies were there. This was irreversible. Not only irresistible, but it was irreversible. There was no way back. It was too late. And you know what the Lord Jesus said? Three times in John 8, verse 22 to 24. If you die in your sins where I am, there you cannot be. And I want to tell you this morning, there's two ways to die. You can die in Christ or you can die without Christ. And if you die without Christ as an unrepentant sinner, you'll be cast into outer darkness where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched and there'll be no escape. There's no exit from hell. In Christ, you can enjoy eternal life and the blessedness and assurance of heaven. But outside of Christ, without Christ, you will experience eternal death and the burnings of an everlasting hell. And the only hope for you is this that you repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see him as your substitute, your surety, your sacrifice, your sin-bearer, that you go to him and bow the knee to him and, and cry out like Thomas, my Lord and my God. You, you ask him like Peter, Lord, save me, I perish. Remember the Bible says in Second Corinthians five twenty one, for he that is God hath made him that is Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 and verse 12, but this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. Do you know him? Can you see him today as your substitute, your surety, your sacrifice, your sin bearer? Can you see him as suffering the wrath of God for you? And can you say, I thank you, Lord, for dying and atoning death for me? Give me a proper view of my sin. Give me a proper view of the sentence of sin. You see, that is the instruction of his sentence. A proper view of sin and a proper view of the sentence. It's personal and perfect and powerful and permanent. And the only way of escape is Christ and Christ alone. Remember Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men. whereby we must be saved. I want you to think of one final thing this morning as I finish. I want you to think of the, the inspiration of his sentence. Because these words, verse 15, as I've already told you, are a central and integral part of this song. And I know there's many songs in the Bible. But did you know that this is the first recorded song? We know that when God created the world, the uh, sons of the morning, the holy angels sang together, but we don't know exactly what they sang. We just know that they did sing, but we don't know what they sang. We don't know nothing of the words. But here's the first recorded song in the Bible. Here's one of the oldest. And notice It was sung unto the Lord. Verse 1, I will sing unto the Lord. You see, it's all about what the Lord has done. It's all directed to him. This God who is glorious in holiness, it's also fearful in praises. We're to praise him. We're to think about the doings of his wonders. We're to remember that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's all about a holy God. And his doings. And what he did. It's not about what Moses did. It's not about what the children of Israel did. It's not even about what the angels did. I know they were probably listening in. It's all about what the Lord has done. Isn't that so different to the songs of the world? Isn't the songs of the world opposite from the songs of the word? Can I tell you a little story? You've heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Whenever he was a boy... His grandmother said to him Charles for every hymn that you can remember The words of I'm going to give you a penny And of course he learned as many hymns as he could When he was a boy It's easy to remember things as a boy I remember learning things as a boy And meditating upon them And and I was blessed by doing that But then he was a wee bit older His grandfather told him I'm going to give you a shilling For every rat that you kill in the barn And of course, in those days, there was 12 pennies in a shilling. So he thought, well, that was a a very profitable occupation. So he killed as many rats as he could and learned as many hymns as he could. Well, you know, later in life, when God saved him and called him into the ministry, he actually made reference to this in one of his sermons that his most profitable occupation was learning those hymns. Because there's hardly a sermon that he preached where he did not quote some particular hymn or the verse of a hymn. And it's very important when we think about singing that we're singing unto the Lord and that our worship is directed to him in light of who he is and light of what he has done. And of course, we must sing from the heart And I believe that the children of Israel and Moses did that very passionately today. And I just want to say in closing. That if the Lord has saved you this morning. Then you should sing joyfully and passionately and heartily unto the Lord. And you should do so in regard to what he has done. And you should rejoice in what this God is going to do for you in the future. And as we sing about God we should sing joyfully and gladly. I know we should sing individually. I know that we should sing congregationally. We can't do that today in the house of God, but you've already done that in your own home. And of course, the Bible tells us there in the book of Colossians, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, how we're to to, uh, sing unto the Lord. It says... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Here's a picture of the Lord saving his people. And this is the song of redemption, it's the song of the soul set free. And do you know what's worth getting excited about? It's worth exalting God over. You should never be bored, young people. You shouldn't be annoyed. I know we're busy with many things. But, you know, think of the less important things. We get so engrossed in them. But we overlook the more important things. And one of the things that we often forget and fail to do is to give praise and thanks to the Lord. And, of course, singing helps us to remember To exalt the Lord. Isn't that what is happening here? The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him in habitation. My father's God and him will exalt. Think of these affirmations here. I'll prepare him in habitation. Will you prepare your heart right now for him? Will you prepare yourself before him to say that he's my father's God? The God of mummy and daddy will be your God. What will you say this morning? I will exalt him. Oh, I, I trust this morning that you'll focus on his attribute, this chief attribute of his holiness. You'll think of God's actions, even in the judgment of the sinner. And you'll be inspired to sing a song unto the Lord in your heart. I trust this morning as we think about God's holiness, as we think about the consideration of a sentence, we'll remember the importance of the sentence. Think of the instruction from the sentence, and think of the inspiration of the sentence. Let us sing heartily and joyfully unto our holy God today. The Lord bless you, and thank you for listening.